congregation, we may open the scriptures in the New Testament. We have our first reading from the Gospel according to John, chapter 14. John 14, the verses 15 through 27. And then we turn ahead to the book of Acts, chapter 5. And we'll read there the first 11 verses. So first, John 14, beginning at verse 15, where the word of the Lord reads as follows, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's our reading from John 14. We are turning ahead in God's Word to Acts chapter 5, where we'll read the first 11 verses. You find that on page 1161 of your Pew Bibles. And after we've read from this passage of God's Word, we'll sing in response hymn 50. Acts 5, beginning at verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? 
and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. In our regular consideration of the Heidelberg Catechism, We've come this afternoon to Lord's Day 20, which we find on page 534 of our Book of Praise. Lord's Day 20, where we confess as follows, what do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, he is, together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. Second, he is also given to me to make me by true faith share in Christ and all his benefits, to comfort me, and to remain with me forever. After we've heard from God's word this afternoon, we will sing in response Psalm 138, stanzas 2 and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the English Poet John Donne once wrote, No person is an island unto himself. He was simply implying that life is filled with relationships. And we understand that. The Lord has not created any of us to be an island unto himself. And so we have parents, grandparents, we have spouses, we have siblings uncles and aunts, nieces and nephews. Life is all about relationships. The same applies to the Christian faith. It's about a relationship. What you often hear in Christian circles today is talk of having a pers personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And to be sure, he is, he as Lord, is the object of our faith. Yet if we leave it at this, we are being somewhat incomplete. The believer's relationship is not just with God the Son. It is at the same time to be a personal relationship with God the Father 
and God the Holy Spirit. We are sometimes guilty of elevating the one person of the Trinity over the other two. And yet our personal relationship is with the triune God. And I wonder if we often think in these terms about the Holy Spirit. It's not hard for us to think in terms of a personal relationship with the Father and the Son. Those very words convey the idea, the image of relationship. But when it comes to speaking of the Holy Spirit, we can be fuzzy at times. Now, we may know a lot about the Holy Spirit, but is it possible that we don't know Him ourselves? How can we then be sure that we have the Holy Spirit? Many will say that in order for you to know that you are Spirit-filled, you have to have a special experience of His power. If you are spirit-filled and have communion with him, then next to nothing is impossible for you. Is that the measuring rod we need to use? I think we can be very thankful for the way our catechism speaks when it comes to our confession of faith in the Holy Spirit. It doesn't give to us an extensive account of the Holy Spirit and His work. It doesn't speak here with all sorts of flair or religious fervor. And that's because Scripture doesn't speak that way about the Spirit and His work. The Holy Spirit works quietly, behind the scenes. He works in the inner secret halls of the human, the believer's heart. <clears throat> How do you know that you have personal communion with him? By knowing him in his person and work. By knowing that he never works on his own, but has such a special, intimate relationship with the other two persons of the Trinity. What the Spirit does is point this sinner away from his sins and to Jesus Christ. The Spirit, brothers and sisters, points you to the truth. He has the role of turning you away from your sins to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ. That's salvation. That's powerful. That's life in the Spirit. So I bring you God's word in this way. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And that speaks of his divinity above us. And secondly, his ministry within us. So first, we, can, we consider together the work of the Holy Spirit in his divine being. The tone of our catechism is very striking here. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? The Catechism has no interest in discovering what you believe on the basis of your experiences because human experience is sometimes untrustworthy. It's not interested, for that matter, either in knowing what you believe on the basis of feelings or emotions because both have been significantly affected by the fall into sin and can very much, therefore, stand in the way of a proper understanding of the Holy Spirit. 
Now the question is after what you believe on the basis of God's word. In answer 53 then, we confess that the Holy Spirit is, together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. We cannot have the one without the others. The Trinity is incomplete without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's work may therefore never be divorced from the work of the Father and the Son. And it's helpful for us to see this. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together. Their works are always one and always for our benefit. And the Spirit's role is bringing that work to completion. It's the Spirit who gets things done. <clears throat> we see it already in the Bible's teaching on creation. Genesis 1, verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And verse 2, we know, follows saying, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then verse 3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. So where the Spirit is, there's action, completion. You turn ahead to chapter 2, verse 7. We talked about that for a moment this morning. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Well, here the word for breathed is the verb from the word of Genesis 1 verse 2 for spirit of God. Well, in other words, the spirit of God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Where the spirit is, there is action. One more example, Exodus 31, the Lord speaks to Moses and he says in verse 3, I have filled Bezalel, son of Uri, with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze. What is God saying here? I have given Bezalel my spirit so that he may be able to build a tabernacle for me. Where the spirit is, there's action. He's busy getting things done. Now, the Old Testament is, of course, admittedly rather lean in its references, explicit references to the spirit of God. The New Testament, then, gives us further color to his identity. We read some of that together in John 14. There the Lord Jesus is the one who is speaking to his disciples. He is one day away from his crucifixion. He knows full well that the hour of his death has come. Well, that in turn means that he will soon be glorified. He will be leaving his disciples. They're no longer going to have their chief prophet and teacher on earth to teach them. And so he sets out to encourage them. He says in 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will obey what I command. 
Love for God is not something vague, abstract. Love is expressed in obedience to Him. That's the calling of Christ's people. It makes it very clear. And then Christ gives to His disciples His own calling, His own duty. Verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Another helper. So we already had a helper, namely Christ himself. And that name, that word helper here is beautiful. It's the word paraclete in Greek. What does it mean? It's very hard to find an exact equivalent in the English translation, English language. Literally, it means someone who comes alongside for help. There's the idea of assistance, legal assistance even, almost like a witness who testifies, an advocate. And so you get counselor in the NIV, which is okay so long as we don't think of camp counselor or marriage counselor. It's more like a legal, professional counselor. Our translation has helper, which is good, even though it can convey a sense of inferiority on the part of the Spirit, or Christ even. One commentator suggests helping presence. Someone who offers help, assistance in a situation where it's needed. Christ was the first helping presence while with the disciples. His official capacity in his ministry is to counsel, advise, help, encourage, and instruct his disciples. And yet this counselor, helper, helping presence, he's leaving. And so he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. This other counselor is going to replace the encouraging, strengthening, helping presence of Jesus while on earth. He's going to be another helping presence. He will continue the work that Jesus has been doing. And that's, of course, none other than, none other than the Spirit of Truth, the divine, sovereign God, the one who cannot lie. The one who reveals truth, reminds of the truth, the one who gets things done. <clears throat> the New Testament confirms the Old Testament. Holy Spirit is together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're together here. Here in John 14, Jesus says, I the Son will pray the Father, and He will send you the Spirit. They belong together, come together, they work together as triune God. And the Spirit is going to complete the work that awaited Him. The Lord Jesus is not going to abandon His disciples, but He's going to speak to His Father. His Father's going to listen, and He's going to send the Holy Spirit to the church. The disciples will no longer have their Savior on earth with them. 
but things are actually going to be even better. At first, they had Jesus, the helper. They had him with them. But soon they will receive the Spirit, the other helper, in a different way. He's going to be in their hearts as close as possible. He's the helper within. We're getting ahead of ourselves here. And we will return back to John 14. But this underlines for us who the Spirit is. He's divine. He's busy. He gets things done. He's a person. Not an it. He's a he. We saw that further in our reading from Acts chapter 5. That's where we read the very distressing story of Ananias and Sapphira. Acts 4, verse 32, tells us that the believers in Jerusalem were all of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. In comes this couple. They were people of means as well. And so they too sold a part of their possessions, a piece of their property. They weren't forced to, but they did. Yet they were dishonest about it. Ananias, with Sapphira's full knowledge, kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. They were dishonest about giving all their gain to the church. They did this for selfish reasons, yes. They did this out of pride, indeed. But ultimately, they did this because they thought that it would somehow escape the notice of God. They thought they could lie and get away with it, give below their means, and get off scot-free. Peter says to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of, this la- of the land? You have lied not to man, but to God. What do we see here? We see Peter interchanging the words Holy Spirit and God, and yet he's still talking about the very same person. Peter knows, he assumes, he takes for granted that the Holy Spirit is God, nothing, no one less. And so he tells Ananias that he has lied right to the Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of truth. And so, brothers and sisters, what happens when you put all these details together? The Holy Spirit is true God together with the Father and the Son. He is our counselor, helper, instructor. He's continuing the work that Christ himself has been doing. The Lord said in John 14, verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Everything the Spirit says will be true and sure. He will testify to his disciples everything that Christ has said to them. This Spirit has been given to us. 
He's who we need. He's the one who gets things done. That's a precious comfort for us who live with questions, uncertainties, burdens in this life. He comes alongside for help, serves as our counselor, encourager, helper by pointing us to Christ. Well, let's see more about that in our second point this afternoon, where we see the ministry of the Spirit within us. Christ's promise in John 14 was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. That's when the Spirit came to live in the church. Now, that doesn't mean that before Pentecost, the church was somehow deprived of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces faith, produces new life, and that was just the same in the Old Testament for all who entered into the kingdom of God. But since Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has changed his place of living, his place of residence. He went from heaven to earth. In the Old Testament, he, as it were, worked from above, raining down blessings and making his people bear fruit. Well, now he works more in a more focused way within. And so we confess in Lord's Day 20 that he is also given to me to make me, by true faith, share in Christ and all his benefits to comfort me and to remain with me forever. The spirit we confess is given. No one can claim him. No one can map him out. No one controls him. There is, if you see it, there is in our confession a sense of awe and amazement. And it's found in that little word, also. He's also given to me. No one receives the Holy Spirit on his own or just by himself. The Catechism guards against any kind of individualism. We are not islands to ourselves. We receive the Spirit together with others. Well, the expression is uh, given also to me implies, of course, that there are others to whom he's been given as well. Who might these others be? Where exactly does the Spirit of Christ live? Jesus said in our reading from John 14, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The I. That I is Jesus returning in the Spirit. To you, he says, tells us where he's going to live. He will live in people, specifically believers, members of the Church of Christ. The Spirit was not poured out over single individuals on the day of Pentecost, but over all the believers gathered on that day. Acts 2, 7 says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit was poured out over the Church of Christ. And because I am a member of the Church of Christ, he's given also to me. This is what we mean in the Catechism. It's an exciting, stimulating confession 
as church, we may share in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It does this imply, brothers and sisters, that each and every last member in the church has the Holy Spirit on the basis merely of being a member? Do we not also confess that there are unbelievers and hypocrites in the church? What about them? What about that? Well, it is indeed presumptuous to say that every last soul in the church has the Spirit. Scripture is very clear that only true believers have the Spirit. And yet, Scripture does say that the Holy Spirit is given to the church. We need not doubt this. We may rejoice that this is the case. And also then grow in the recognition that the Spirit is given to the church, the visible gathering of the saints. That means we have to be on guard, as we've sung, not to grieve the Spirit. One of the ways of avoiding that is by going where the Spirit works in the church. It's what we often call the workshop of the Holy Spirit, simply because He works and He lives here in the midst of the saints. This is where you undergo the ministry of the Holy Spirit as you place yourself under the proclamation of the Word of God. We have to go to where the Holy Spirit has been poured out, where His power is most clearly seen. When we seek the Spirit in faith, where He is given, then His work becomes very, very personal. Here in church is where we experience sharply that He's given also to me. Catechism goes on to indicate why the Spirit is given to make me, by true faith, share in Christ and all His benefits. This is the central element. The Spirit's main concern is to bind us, unite us to Jesus Christ. He leads us to the Lord Jesus and he says, receive him, enjoy him and all his benefits by faith. Faith is the only way by which we can be bound to Christ. That faith is, of course, the gift of God, Paul says in Ephesians 2. Gift worked in our hearts by the Spirit. And by that faith, we may then reach out with the empty hand to Christ receive Him, enjoy Him and all His benefits. It's the Spirit of Christ who turns us away from ourselves and toward the Lord. You might say that the food and drink of the Holy Spirit is to put our hand into the hand of Christ. And He's not satisfied until we consider Christ to be our all in all that we place Christ above us. So when the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 20, when he says that he desires one thing, that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, 
This is an expression in full harmony with the Spirit's desire and the Spirit's purpose for us. This helps us see this afternoon congregation that the Holy Spirit does not add anything to the work of Christ, but he makes us share in what is already ours in Christ. The Spirit doesn't need to add anything because that work of salvation is finished. All that remains is that we now partake of that salvation, that we obtain it, make it our own. We have a bond already with Christ, and that's the bond of faith. Through that bond, the Spirit does His work of application. The Spirit's work goes deep into your heart. He works faith in you. He feeds and He nourishes and He strengthens that faith. He's constantly with you and within you. He makes alive what is dead. He strengthens what is weak. Well, how joyful we may be that the Spirit never ceases in this work, never takes a day off. In fact, this may be his busiest day of the week. Otherwise, you see, we would surely be lost and surely meet our doom. We accept the promise of his permanent indwelling. And so we experience him personally. Yes, you and I, brothers and sisters, can point to his work within us. The Catechism speaks very clearly of this when it says that the Holy Spirit is given to comfort me and to remain with me forever. He is the other counselor, advisor, helper. He's been given to help and comfort us, to comfort. Well, that really means to give strength. Isn't that surely what the disciples needed? Isn't that what all Christians need following them, going with them? Because life as we know it is broken. Our faith is often so weak and the enemy is strong. We come across situations that can lead us to doubt and draw us away from Jesus Christ and from his church. We come across illness, disappointment, betrayal. Satan wants to take our hand from Christ, sift us like wheat, and lead us to destruction. He tries that in subtle ways. We even saw that this morning with our Savior. He tempts us to look for comfort, encouragement, security, a bit of glory from wrong places, from human counsel and wisdom instead of God's word. But the Spirit of Christ will not allow Satan to gain the upper hand. He's there to comfort me and to remain with me forever. It's so remarkable how the Lord Jesus speaks to his disciples about the spirit of truth. 
John 14, verse 17, he says, the world cannot receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him. That makes good sense to us. The world hates the truth and it loves the lie, and therefore the world cannot accept the bearer of truth, Jesus Christ, and whatever gifts he brings with him, including his spirit. Jesus goes on, you, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You know the spirit, the world doesn't. The world doesn't understand what you are talking about because the world can't discern the spirit. But the church knows the spirit. You know him because he's living in you. What does this imply for us? Where the spirit is, there's action. The spirit is given to the church and as living members of this church, we may experience the comfort of the Spirit. <clears throat> His presence is a great comfort. Because as the Lord Jesus said, He teaches us all things and reminds us of everything Christ taught in His earthly ministry. As you go through life's ups and downs, the Holy Spirit who resides in you causes you to remember, call to mind certain aspects, all aspects of Christ's teaching, and he applies those teachings to your life. Christ, what did he teach us? Well, he taught us the promises of the gospel of forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. The Holy Spirit turns you to those promises and he thereby serves his purpose as counselor, helper. Well, that work of his, however, is not done in isolation from everything else. The Holy Spirit is pleased to always work through means. Sometimes, then, our relationship with the Spirit is not as it ought to be. And the Bible warns us in no uncertain terms of that. We are not to grieve or quench the Spirit. We ought not to make things difficult for the Spirit within us. For then we will only increase our pain and sorrow. Instead, for us to enjoy the comfort and the blessing of the Spirit, we have to ensure that we come under His influence. We need to carve out times to read our Bibles. If you want to buy an apple, you go to the supermarket. You go where you know you'll find it. If you want comfort, encouragement, counsel, you go where you know you're going to find it. When you study your Bible, meditate on its deep truths, the Holy Spirit will counsel you. He will guide you and direct you in the midst of confusion and darkness. He's going to show you what is pleasing to God and what is not. He will show you what leads to peace and what leads to contentment and what rips that all away. 
And so to the word is where you simply go to see the work, experience the work of the Spirit. There he promises his abiding presence with us through good and bad times, through the joys and the struggles of faith. There in his word, he shows us that he does all of this for our salvation. Beloved, you may know, you can know the personal presence of the Spirit in your life. The Spirit cannot forsake the church, the bride of Christ. And if that's true, then he will not forsake me if I confess my faith in him. You know him, Jesus said. His power is known, for he points you again and again to the Savior, to the cross. That's ultimately where you're going to find your encouragement, counsel, peace, and contentment. Because Christ is the solution to all the brokenness in your life. He's paid for your sins. He's restored you to your heavenly Father. What more comfort and encouragement could we ask for? The cross of Christ is also what motivates you by the Spirit's power to crucify the flesh with its demands. The cross motivates you to produce the fruit of the Spirit. It motivates you to love God and show that by obeying His commands. Life is filled with relationships. The Christian faith is about a relationship with the triune God. We, we know him. We know he is sovereignly working. We may know that we have personal communion with him, for we know that he never works on his own, but he has such a special, intimate relationship with the other two persons of the Trinity for our benefit. And we know that he points us away from our sins and to Jesus Christ and his shed blood by which God has reconciled us to himself. The Spirit, brothers and sisters, points you to the truth incarnate in the flesh. He points you to your salvation. Salvation that he's going to complete. God shall fulfill his plan for me, his promise he will keep forever. Lord God of grace, do not cast off your works of love. Forsake them never. I believe that he never will, for he is God, and he lives in me. That's powerful. That's salvation. By the Spirit of Christ, amen.